ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Is it time to amplify your income potential? Explore what a high-quality covered call strategy can do for your monthly income needs. Discover Amplify DIVO and IDVO providing monthly income potential and active management in the efficiency of an ETF. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. ETFs are subject to covered call risk. Visit AmplifyETFs.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Wes Krill, Head of Investment Strategist at Dimensional. And I know I've said this in the past, but you look at what Dimensional has done since entering the ETF space, it's nothing short of remarkable. I mean, they launched their first ETF in November 2020, only, what, two and a half years ago. And already they're up to eighth place on the ETF issuer leaderboard. And they're actually uh, already the largest actively managed ETF issuer. They have over... $82 billion in assets. Again, just a remarkable success story. And one I predicted, by the way, back in my 2021 ETF predictions. But I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Wes. Uh, we are going to talk more about the current state of Dimensional's ETF business. But we're also going to look at the current state of the ETF industry overall. So we'll get into things like mutual fund to ETF conversions, active ETFs, uh, smart beta. We're going to cover a number of topics. And then we'll also touch on Dimensional's uh, investment approach, which, which I'm very curious to hear Wes's take on value investing uh, in particular. So he'll join me here in a bit. Also on the podcast will be another Wes, Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. And you talk about another uh, remarkable ETF success story. They're a white labeling business, ETF Architect. That thing is absolutely booming. I mean, they're in the perfect spot, in my opinion. And one of the reasons is actually because of mutual fund to ETF conversions. Uh, they are seeing a lot of those. And so we'll discuss that white labeling business. And then we'll also spotlight a couple of recent Alpha Architect launches, including the Alpha Architect one to three month box ETF, ticker BOXX. You're going to learn what a box spread is today. I hope you have your uh, thinking cap on. And then the uh, Alpha Architect High Inflation and Deflation ETF, ticker HIDE, H-I-D-E. 
Now, to start this week, I have on the line with me Tom Hendrickson, president of Vetify, and I'm very excited about our topic. We are going to look at the latest Bitwise Vetify benchmark survey of financial advisor attitudes towards crypto assets. So let's do that now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, great having you back on the podcast. And it was uh, so great seeing you at Exchange a couple of weeks ago. It sure was, Nate. Thanks for thanks for everything you did down there. I know you uh, recorded an episode of ETF Prime, and and it was a, it was a lot of fun to get everyone down there and bring the community together. So uh, great to see you, and and thanks for having me today. Yeah, and we'll get into the uh, the crypto survey here in a minute. But did you have any major uh, takeaways from the event now that you've had a little time to reflect? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, Nate, just for the folks who maybe weren't able to join us uh, either last April or this February, so this was the second iteration of the Exchange Conference, which is hosted down at the the, Fount, the, the iconic Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach. And so it was four days of, of jam-packed content and learning, um, interactive on-site activations, uh, you know, networking opportunities, some fun was had, I think. Um, and, and certainly a lot of uh, opportunity just to uh, reconnect in person in ways that, you know, maybe we've been a little bit light on for the last number of years. So it was just it was excellent to get everyone down there. We had, uh, you know, Nate, you and I are a little bit of data guys and, and I could tell you about, you know, more than 2200 registrants, 1800 people on site, 114 different sponsor partners were were involved in it. But maybe the the. The thing I want to highlight, um, you know, shine a bit brighter of a spotlight on is we actually have wove in three different uh, philanthropic, uh, you know, opportunities for the community to participate in. So there was a beach cleanup in the one morning um, hosted by the Surfrider, you know, foundation. We did a Susan G. Komen walk for breast cancer research uh, on the Tuesday morning and, and raised, uh, you know, more than $10,000 there. And then one of my personal favorites, and I got to walk through the the lobby of the Fountain Blue as, as these young adults came in from Junior Achievement. Uh, we did a mentorship program. Over a hundred high school students came and, and were able to interact with a whole host of folks who uh, were a little bit further along in their career, and they were they were able to talk about and share their experiences, how they onboarded onto the workforce, and. Uh, I think the kids just came in, uh, you know, they were literally beaming and just smiles ear to ear and were extremely excited about that. So what, what I what I take away from that, Nate, is that, you know, as as Vetify, our mission is to transform uh, transform financial services from an industry into a community. And, and exchange is absolutely the, the physical embodiment of our of our mission. So, uh, yeah, we're, we were really excited to put it on, and, and the team that supported it was just unbelievable. So thanks for shouting that out. No, I, I love the event. I thought it was, uh, and, and just what you're hitting on, I love the fact that Vetify is trying to have a, a real impact uh, w- within the local community there when you when you host an event like this. But, um, you know, I know this is cliche. I, I just loved having the opportunity to meet people in person. You, you know, the fact is I am in Kansas City. 
I love it here, but I'm not on one of the coasts, right? I'm not in New York City or L.A. or, or Chicago uh, or, or wherever, some of these financial hubs. So I don't have as many opportunities to, to meet people in person, but these are people that I interact with all the time, whether it's on this podcast or otherwise. And I, I thought Exchange did uh, an excellent job of facilitating those interactions. So I definitely had a lot of fun, probably a few more uh, cocktails than I really needed, <laughs> but it was a uh, it was a great time. Um, okay, Tom, so actually because of Exchange, we did not have an opportunity to discuss one of my favorite surveys that Vetify puts together. Um, as I noted, you do this every year, at least you have for the past five years. You collaborate with Bitwise Investments on this benchmark survey of financial advisor attitudes towards crypto assets. And the most recent survey was released uh, just a few weeks ago. Look, I wanted to make sure we circle back on this for several reasons. Uh, Number one, Bitcoin and crypto have bounced back this year, right? And even in the ETF space, you know, some of these blockchain ETFs are the best performers. And so I thought the survey was timely in that regard. Um, number two, we're seeing a real regulatory push from the SEC around crypto right now. I, I, I mean, they're going after pretty much everyone and everything guns a blazing. And I think that ties into some of the survey results w- that, that you found, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get into. And then number three, look, I, I know some people wish this entire space would just shrivel up and go away. But uh, I have bad news for those people. This isn't going anywhere. You, you may not like it. You may think crypto's a scam. But I, I'm just telling you, in one form or another, this space is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. And so I'm going to continue doing my best to educate people and, and cover this. And, and so that's why I think this is an important topic to cover. And uh, so with all that, Tom, I, I guess let's start with the survey itself and just tell us when was this conducted? Uh, how was this put together? Th- those sorts of things. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, Nate, you mentioned this is the fifth year. So this is the sixth, sur- fifth year, sixth uh, survey that's coming out here. Uh, and so we've been doing this in partnership with our friends at Bitwise, who are, are some of the uh, you know preeminent thought leaders within the space at, at an institutional caliber. So they they approach the space in in a very you know serious and rigorous regard. So so we really appreciate that. And uh, you know Matt Hogan and, and others there are certainly. Um, you know, amongst the you know luminaries in the space, and have been very early on. So we conducted this year's survey. It took place from November 25th through January 6th. So it's extremely fresh. So this is extremely timely data. The survey just wrapped up a little bit more than a month ago. So this is nearly hot off the presses. Nearly 500 respondents. What our intention is to is to get a cross section of the broader advisor community. So advisors of all types. So nearly. Half of the respondents were RIAs, registered investment advisors. About 25% are, you know, consider themselves broker-dealer representatives. 15% financial planners. 7% from the wires, and then 3% institutional investors. So it's a, it's a great cross section to take the pulse of, you know, what these folks are seeing in their day to day as it relates to the crypto space. Um, in terms of assets under management, also a nice bell curve here. So the the mean. Uh, assets under management of the, the the advisor group was between 50 and 100 million dollars, but there was at either end, you know, 11 percent are managing more than a billion dollars, 42 percent managing over 100 million. So we had a great cross section there. 
And, and ultimately, I think that this is the right group um, for us to tap into the collective mind of, of what advisors are seeing in their day to day and the conversations that they're having with their clients, which, you know, to your point, Nate, uh, I think there's probably some folks who would like to see things go away. But uh, the job of an advisor, and I think you'd agree, is to, uh, you know, to be helpful along every step and every facet of, of their clients' financial lives. And the reality is, is that this is important to a lot of people and advisors are getting asked about it on a continual basis. So um, despite, you know, any sort of philosophical beliefs around it, you need to be able to speak fluently to the topic. Okay. So that gets into some of the survey's findings and obviously the backdrop to the survey uh, was an absolutely brutal year in crypto last year, right? Bitcoin was down 65%. We had all of these negative headlines around FTX Three Arrows Capital, Terra Luna, uh, all, all of these negative headlines out there. So given that, what, what did you find? Give us some highlights from the survey. Well, I'd actually, you know, so the the, the data point um, just about how every advisor needs to be able to to have a, a fluency and, and an understanding of the space. So one thing that I'd highlight just as an overarching sort of meta theme as, as to why this is important is that 90% so nine out of 10 advisors are receiving questions about crypto. And so, um, you know, just start with that. And, and the fact that, you know, nearly all advisors are getting some type of questions around what this, what's going on in the space. Where does it fit in my portfolio? How should I approach it? Um, you know, if I were to take a, a position, how do I size it? And, and how do I get exposure? All of the, those things are things that we asked throughout the survey. And I think the other thing to, you know, sort of the nexus of that is that, 59% of advisors said some or all of their clients are investing outside of the advisor slash client relationship. So I think that there's a real, um, you know, opportunity for the advisor to bring that, um, you know, what's, you know, kind of satellite and outside the realm of, a, of their traditional financial lives back into the realm of, of how they approach their broader portfolio construction. And then, you know, the other one I would highlight, Nate, and, and we can certainly take these in stride. I'm curious on your opinion on these things as well. But the thing that I also found interesting is 37% of the advisors who answered this, they're investing in crypto on their own as well. And so, you know, this is this is not a, you know, binary sort of, you know, retail versus advisor. Um, there's certainly a propensity to invest in the space uh, by advisors themselves, nearly 40%, albeit that's down a little bit. You mentioned a challenging year in 2022. Uh, there was 37% in the 2023 uh, survey that advisors said they were investing in their personal portfolio, which was down from 47 in 2022, albeit up um, the longer term trend being upwards as 17% in 2020, 24% in 2021 were investing in it. So. Uh, not straight up into the right, but certainly more and more advisors are including that in their own personal portfolios. Yeah, and I think you hit the one that jumped off the page to me the most, which is the 90% of advisors receiving a question about crypto from clients last year. And that speaks to, to what I started with at the top and that whether or not you uh, believe in this space, you agree with the space, whatever, if you're getting questions from clients, you have to be prepared to answer those questions, which is what you were saying earlier. L let me ask you this one item that caught my attention in the survey. What uh, was this question of, what, if any, of the following exposures are you most interested in allocating to in 2023 for clients? The top answer was crypto equity ETFs that hold multiple crypto stocks. So that, that was 25% of respondents. 
And as I think you know, I, I crudely refer to the space as uh, blockchain ETFs. So think something like the Amplified Transformational Data Sharing ETF, ticker BLOK, or uh, Bitwise. They, they have a couple, like their Crypto Industry Innovators ETF, ticker BITQ. Did, did that surprise you at all, that crypto equity ETFs led there? It doesn't necessarily surprise me, Nate. And I think, you know, if I put myself in the shoes of, of a lot of advisors and, and you're an advisor and we talk to a lot of advisors, I think that um, one of the things that is is well within the advisor playbook is, is to understand the power of diversification. Uh, and, you know, coupled with all of the attributes that uh, have led to some you know, significant growth in the ETF space. And when you put those things together, as they're, they are doing, um, you know, well by their clients, it doesn't surprise me that they would approach the space by using a diversified, um, you know, wrapper with, with great delivery attributes, as opposed to buying, you know, individual coins or specific, uh, you know, one-off exposures that may not provide that type of diversification. So I think as we talk about not only multiple stocks within the ETF. I think the other thing that we're seeing here is is the bleed in of, um, you know, just the adoption and the understanding uh, of of the ETF wrapper itself and, and ultimately the propensity to use that within the portfolio and, and, and for, you know, core building blocks of portfolio construction, be them crypto, be them other exposures. I think that's um, something that we're coming up here. And, and frankly, there's probably a little bit of a bias as we go out to this community that we we have been and, and you have been educating about the the value of ETFs, uh, you, know, you know, sort of tirelessly for for a decade plus. Well, and I've talked about this before. I wonder if advisors view something like crypto equity ETFs as a bridge between traditional financial services and crypto. It's a way to dip their toe in the water, you know, help get more educated on the space, help their clients become more educated on the space. You, you know, that's one way to do it, I, I think, pretty easily. Um, Tom, just kind of going down some of the other findings here, in my mind, probably one of the most important questions in the survey was what is preventing you from initiating or adding to crypto exposure in client accounts? And the number one answer here was regulatory concerns. 65% of respondents cited that. And then uh, too much volatility was number two with 60%. Uh, I'll also note that 32% of advisors said a lack of easily accessible investment vehicles like ETFs and mutual funds was a factor. And we can certainly talk about that in a moment. But the regulatory environment is clearly a huge factor here, especially when you look at how aggressive the SEC has been recently. And I'll tell you, from my perspective, I completely get this because I don't think most advisors uh, want to go barking up the wrong tree here with regulators, right? It's just better to stay away all together. I'm curious, any color you would add regarding this need for regulatory clarity around crypto? Well, I think you're hitting the, the nail on the head, Nate, as it relates to, I think there's a broader, um, you know, duty or, at play here as it relates to just the job of an advisor and, and how they can advise their clients well. And I actually don't, I think it's, you know, crypto agnostic. I think that this this not barking up the wrong tree, it, you know, applies across the portfolio. And, and it makes a lot of sense to me that in, you know, somewhat of a nascent space where the regulatory regime seems to be shifting and changing. And, and you know, we're, I think, trying to find some terra firma as to what that looks like go forward. 
it makes sense to me that advisors as stewards of their clients' capital and, and um, you know, trying to provide great advice that they would be somewhat uh, reticent to, to jump in into any area. And certainly what happened in 2022, you know, the, the third answer in that, that question that you referenced was, you know, failures of some, some of the institutions like F, F, FTX or Celsius or, or others. And that was something that um, probably even added to the pause um, through which advisors were thinking about entering the space. And so, you know, whenever, whenever there's those types of, you know, headline driven, uh, failures within, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, managed futures or somewhere else within the market, as we have seen in the past, I think that advisors are, are, you know, rightfully taking their client portfolios, um, you know, very seriously as it relates to how they approach the space. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's just, you know, clearly, the investment advisory space is one of the more heavily regulated industries out there. And I, I think, again, from an advisor's perspective, it, it's tough because you have 90% getting questions from clients. What was the other stat you mentioned? 57% of clients uh, investing in crypto on their own. And it's it's a weird spot for an advisor to be in because in many ways they can't help the client as they would normally like to because of these regulatory constraints. I mean, you look even here recently, the SEC is looking at the, uh, the the custody of crypto and, you know, the due diligence that advisors have done on where crypto is custodied on behalf of their clients, stuff like that. I think most advisors just say, you know what, I, I'm again, I'm staying away from this. It, it doesn't make sense, but that's a tough spot for an advisor to be in where you can't directly help the client, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, Nate, I, I consider you, you know, extremely well-educated and, and a thought leader in this space. What, and I know uh, your crystal ball is, is as good as everyone else's, but do you have some thoughts on where we're headed from a regulatory, um, you, you know, oversight and, and where does that go in the future? Like, how, how does this play out to you, um, you know, for the rest of this year and, and even beyond? Yeah, I mean, the SEC is clearly clamping down on everything in the crypto space. They're trying to get their – to me, it looks like there's a little bit of a turf war between the SEC and the CFTC as to, to who oversees and, and regulates crypto. But putting that aside, clearly the SEC is, is getting much more aggressive uh, in the space. But what it's going to come down to, Congress is going to have to put some sort of – um, real framework in place here on the regulatory side. SEC ultimately reports to Congress. And so until Congress can get something done uh, around crypto, nothing is going to change here, in my opinion. And, you know, they don't tend to be the uh, swiftest <laughs> or, or move in the, in the quickest fashion, as I think mm -hmm. we all know. So I, I really think that's what it's going to come down to. Is that going to take a year, two years, five years, it's tough to say. I'll, I'll tell you from my standpoint, it's a little disappointing looking overseas and seeing, um, you know, some, some other developed countries being much more progressive on this. You know, again, is there grift and are there scams in crypto? Yes, but I think, I think it's also a real innovation here. And it's something that as a country we should embrace and try to figure out how we can foster. So, you know, I, I just think it's going to take a while. But, yeah, I think it ultimately comes down to, to, to Congress putting a real regulatory framework in place. Yeah. Nate, I'm, you know, a little bit tongue in cheek here, but it's funny. So we we took a, a few different tilts at the, the regulation, you know, aspect here. And, and the other question that we asked was uh, what would make you more comfortable in allocating to crypto assets in the future? 
uh, and better regulation was the the clear head and shoulders leader there with 75% of respondents. Better custodial solutions was was then the second most popular answer at 47%. Better education, I think that that's something that you know uh, you and I um, you know certainly firmly believe in that just this continued education, especially in a space as dynamic um, as you know not only ETFs but investment management and and the crypto space writ large. Uh, that's that's key and critical. Less volatility was the fourth answer, although and, and I needed to get to the fifth fifth answer for you, which was the launch of a spot based ETF. So that was the 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 fifth one that the, the advisory community was looking for. But um, again, a little bit tongue in cheek. But you know those other ones are certainly extremely important. And, and you know I would pull out the educational component and and like you say, um, you know the regulatory framework is is guided by better education in from all t- types of stakeholders um you know regulators um you know governments um advisors and their clients well and i i just want to add i i know i'm beating the same drum here but on the note of education because of the lack of regulation around crypto which has caused many advisors to be hesitant allocating uh to this space which makes complete sense to me while we're at this impasse and we're waiting on Congress and the SEC to do something here, guess what? It's the perfect time to become educated on the space. So when mm-hmm. you can actually allocate on behalf of clients, if they so choose, and as an advisor, you so choose, you're going to be fully educated. At a minimum, though, as you get questions, you'll be able to respond to them intelligently. So this is the perfect time to get educated on the space. Um, Tom, just a minute left. You, you baited me a little bit, so I'm going to take the bait. Uh, I'm going to ask you about a spot Bitcoin ETF because one of the questions in the survey was, uh, what would be your preferred way to invest in crypto? And guess what? 68%, 68% said an ETF. It was a landslide. The majority want it, even though the SEC isn't having it. Uh, Any real quick comments on that? No, it made it. It makes it makes a ton of sense, and but but it's it is it is interesting to me. So last year's survey, you know, the ETF wrapper was also the the head and shoulders leader at fifty eight percent, but that even jumped this year to sixty eight percent. So the landslide grows um, is all I could say, and so that that drum beat just continues to get louder. Well, Tom, uh, love this survey. Great work here. Thank you for joining me this week. Thanks, Nate. That was Tom Hendrickson, president of Vetify. Own Bitcoin but also want income? There is a way to generate monthly income while you hold. Visit Simplify.us for information on the Simplify Bitcoin income strategy. Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor. This information is not intended to provide investment advice. My next guest is Wes Krill, head of investment strategist at Dimensional, who currently offers 30 ETFs, over $82 billion in assets. And remember, 
Their first ETF only launched about two and a half years ago. It's just a remarkable ETF success story. And Wes is now on the line with me from Austin, Texas. Wes, thank you so much for joining me this week. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right, so a lot we're going to cover, but to start, let's just stay on this topic of Dimensionals ETF growth. So I was looking this morning, you're already now the eighth largest ETF issuer. Again, your first ETF didn't debut until November 2020. You're actually the largest active ETF issuer. Uh, You've had a number of successful mutual fund to ETF conversions, which we can certainly talk about those. Just give us the current state of Dimensional's ETF business, which I've got to say looks pretty healthy to me. Yeah, I mean, it's been very exciting. You know, like you mentioned, you know, up to 30 ETFs spanning about $82 billion in AUM. And it's very rewarding to us to have been able to become the eighth largest ETF issuer uh, among both you know, active and passive already in a pretty short period of time. Um, you know, we, we think it's a tribute to our clients and, you know, what we're trying to do here, which is deliver better investment solutions in as many forms as possible. And the reception has been very rewarding. Um, and it's, you know, what we would have expected when we're bringing something to the market that's highly valued by our clients. Um, just in 2022 alone, we saw $26 billion in that new assets going into the ETFs. So a lot of excitement and hopefully more on the horizon. When you look at the total assets and dimensional ETFs, obviously a decent chunk of that has been from mutual fund to ETF conversions. And it's interesting. So just in the past week or so, I've seen two different pieces. There was one from uh, Bloomberg and then one from the Financial Times. And the gist of both of those was that despite dimensional's success here, this has not been a home run for everyone. As a matter of fact, Bloomberg noted that over a third of converted funds have posted net outflows since they made the switch, and 61% have attracted less than $10 million each. And so I'm curious from your perspective, why is Dimensional having so much success here, whereas some other issuers are struggling a bit? What, what do you make of that? I think it's indicative that the ETF structure itself is not a panacea. You still need to be bringing investment solutions that are fitting into, you know, what your your clients are trying to do, right? So when we think about our heritage of when we've launched investment strategies, it's not been about what we wanted to do. It was about what our clients needed from us to help their clients meet their goals. And so that, that drives, you know, our product development and we think of the ETFs that we offer as residing alongside mutual funds, and in many cases, they have very closely related mutual fund counterparts. We want our clients to have both options. The conversions for us were a special case um, where, you know, because they were tax-managed strategies, they were meant to minimize the impact of taxes, and the ETF structure just gave us an additional leg up in terms of achieving that objective. And so they were strategies that very clearly had a home, and but we saw the ETF structure as a way to maximize those objectives. Um, so in that scenario, the conversion made sense. We think, generally speaking, converting mutual funds to ETFs just for the sake of having an ETF is not likely to be solving a need and may suffer in terms of flows like what you've seen in the industry. Okay, so given that, I'm curious, what do you see as the overall future potential of these conversions? And we're going to talk about some other ETF industry trends here in a moment, broader trends. But um, I'll tell you, Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas 
has estimated that we may see $1 trillion in conversions over the next 10 years, uh, despite some of these early struggles from other issuers. Do you think something like that is doable, or are you not quite as bullish, given what you just said? Well, I think you're seeing the value of the ETF structure. I mean, that is obviously a very desirable uh, type of vehicle for investment solutions. And, you know, whether those conversions continue, I mean, I don't think I could really make a case for for everybody. I think it's going to depend on what they're seeing in terms of the benefit. If they don't expect to continue to receive flows or they don't expect to, to, I guess, ring the dinner bell, so to speak, and attract a lot of attention, um, you know, that might peter out in terms of its desirability. So, you know, when we think about our uh, investment offerings, for example, you know, we're typically looking at what are new launches of ETFs? What are some new um, portfolios that we can launch to help our clients, uh, you know, have a, more of a well-rounded collection of both mutual funds and ETFs from which to choose? So what are some new asset classes where we don't currently have ETF offerings? And so that's the way we're thinking about it. Um, you know, I can't say for certain that everybody's looking at it the same way. Okay, so that's a good segue here. Let's talk more about the overall state of the ETF industry. And I I, I think to your point, one thing with these mutual fund to ETF conversions is just because you put a strategy in the ETF wrapper, that doesn't guarantee success, right? At the end of the day, the ETF is simply that. It's a wrapper, and it's what's inside that matters. And so I'm curious, what do you feel like is the key to success, which Clearly, Dimensional is demonstrating because, you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, active strategies come to market, options-based products. There are a lot of thematic ETFs, and I don't think ETF launches are slowing down anytime soon. So how do you view the the, the current state of the industry in, in that regard in terms of what may drive future success for issuers? Yeah, the proliferation of choices is a bit of a double-edged sword, right? It's nice to have lots of different options out there for meeting your investment needs. But then there's also a lot of opportunities to maybe end up with something that you know, doesn't target it as, as much of a need as maybe you would expect. I think having a good framework for how you would evaluate all these different options to figure out what belongs in your portfolio is pretty critical. And I think it's really basic to me. It's, okay, if I'm looking at a new investment offering, does this increase my expected returns? Does it manage risk? You know, that's very simple criteria. Um, the expected returns part is, you know, fairly straightforward. Um, but you need to be able to make a case for why this would be delivering an expected return. Um, you know, I think that's where you get into things like, for example, cryptocurrency. The expected return isn't is evident there because it's not like holding one Bitcoin today entitles you to more in the future, and it's not giving you a promised stated rate of interest on its own. Uh, it's not giving you a claim on future cash flows. Um, so you know that's kind of where I land in terms of evaluating the expected return, and then the risk part. I mean that can come in lots of different forms, but you can ask yourself, okay, is this increasing my diversification? Is it expanding my opportunity set by giving me a portion of the market that I did not have exposure to before. If it's just delivering the same kind of asset class, but in a repackaged way, that might not be expanding my opportunity set. And that also gives you a little bit of an intuition for how much you would want to hold. If something is only representing you know, a fraction of a basis point of the overall market capitalization, let's say it's a niche ETF that is uh, only giving you exposure to a narrow sliver of the market, well, then maybe it doesn't make sense to hold that in very high quantities in your portfolio. So 
Um, you know, again, there's no silver bullet in terms of figuring out what's going to be useful or not, but I think having that kind of framework can help tune out some of the noise for this plethora of offerings these days. Okay, so I, I like this. Let's stay on this topic because I actually think it gets into Dimensional's approach specifically. And obviously, you know, actively managed ETFs have been a big story recently. They've taken in outsized inflows. We've seen a lot of new launches here. Uh, but also something I've discussed quite a bit recently is this resurgence in smart beta ETFs, which is basically uh, rules-based active management, right? Th- those had a huge year last year. So when you talk about a framework and, and what the proper framework should be, um, how do you think about this from Dimensional's perspective? Because I think some people would say Dimensional is sort of a hybrid of active and smart beta, right? Some would say you're, you're a best of both worlds. So talk about how, how you view active, smart beta, and then Dimensional's approach. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it highlights how just the dichotomy between active and passive has in some ways outgrown its original usage. Um, you know, as you would be aware, back in the day, the emergence of passive was really based on a tacit admission that investors couldn't outguess markets, that traditional active methods of picking stocks or trying to time markets was not faring well consistently. So the original distinction between active and passive was really a philosophical uh, distinction. Now, what you're seeing these days is you have separate kind of as- or aspects to these investment solutions. There's a philosophy behind it. Is it uh, embracing market prices or is it eschewing the power of markets? But then you also have the implementation segment of the investment process, and that's where you can also have further delineation between active and passive. Passive implementation you can think of as outsourcing the investment process. This is what you would expect out of a traditional index fund, um, which can have very low costs, but it can arrive at those very low costs because it is outsourcing so much of the investment process. There's someone else, Russell, MSCI, who is determining what those index fund managers are going to hold and when they're going to hold it with the goal of minimizing tracking error. Now, we think you can combine a passive investment philosophy, so this idea of embracing market prices, but with active implementation. This is really where dimensional excels, in my opinion, because we have a daily process that's using up-to-date information from markets and then rebalancing continuously through time. So you can take an index level of turnover, but if you spread it out across 250 trading days, you can make the cost of that turnover lower and you can make the exposure of the portfolio more consistent. And so I think that's where I do arrive at, as you described it, kind of a hybrid between a passive philosophy and active implementation. Wes, when you talk about Dimensional's uh, investment implementation, I'd love to have you discuss value investing in particular, because obviously Dimensional is well known for taking a more value-oriented approach, uh, along with tilting towards factors such as small caps and and profitability. But as we look forward here in in 2023, I I know this is a topic on the front of minds of a lot of investors, so I'd love to hear your views on value, which has been much maligned for the better part of, what, a, a decade plus, and then had significant outperformance over the past two years or so. Do you think there's still room for value to run? Yeah, you know, this is where just having the expertise of the research around what drives differences in stock returns is critical to informing expectations like this. And you think about what the challenge is. Okay, well, we don't believe that we can outguess markets by picking stocks, and that leads to the research on factors. But it's critical for us to have a really well-rounded framework for how we assess what factors we want in the portfolios. You know, you mentioned there's size and value and profitability. 
And you know, these are straightforward valuation type implications that suggest that if I pay less for a stock or I expect to receive more in terms of future cash flows, that's indicative of a higher expected return. And that's an important framework to have in the back of our mind because, to your point, when we go through a period of time where value was underperforming growth, look, the three-year period from uh, 2018 through 2020 was one of the worst three-year periods in U.S. history for values performance relative to growth stocks. And that can shake anyone's confidence in pursuing that premium going forward. That's why we believe it's critical to have that philosophical framework where we still believe in a value premium. As long as I believe there's differences in stock returns, I'm going to continue to believe in a value premium going forward. And we were, we were rewarded for our consistent exposure to it um, in 2021 and 2022. But then that does lead to the questions of, okay, well, was that it? Is, is that it for values run, or can it continue going forward? A couple of key points I usually try and note here. One is that there's not really persistence in the value premium, meaning if I have a really good or really bad year, then that tells me almost nothing about what next year's outcome is going to be. In fact, if I were to categorize all of the value premium observations by calendar year, going back to 1928, the years following a bottom quartile uh, value premium observation, so the worst years for the value premium, the next year's value premium was about 4.3% on average. That's almost identical to what it's been coming out of top quartile value premium years with the next year value outperformed growth on average by 4.7%. And then you look at the valuation spreads. Um, there's no two ways about it. They're still very, very wide. Um, and what I mean by that is aggregate valuations of value stocks versus growth stocks. And we see it's very, it's a yawning chasm between those, both in the U.S. and outside the U.S. So those both suggest that whatever we have witnessed from the value premium recently, it's unlikely to be a strong determinant of where it's going to go in the future. And because of that, I continue to believe in value because it makes sense from a valuation standpoint. Wes, just a couple of minutes left here. On a related note, I know one of your areas of expertise is investor behavior. And I, I think certainly when you talk about value investing and the value premium, but, but really anytime you're doing anything different than market cap weighted indexing, you're going to have quote unquote tracking error, right? And, and so I'm curious, how do you prepare clients for this? Because I think everyone. Uh, you, you know, knows you're going to have that tracking error. And I think everything that you've described here today in terms of dimensionals approach, it, it makes a ton of sense. I think you can look at the academic research going back years to know that it makes sense. But investors still have to be able to stick with the strategies, right? You can have the best strategies in the world, but if investors can't stick with them, it doesn't matter. So h- how do you tackle that challenge? Yeah, that's exactly right. You think about someone who were to give up their value exposure at the end of 2020 and miss that 2021 through 2022 rally, um, that performance of value stock did them no good whatsoever. And so it's, you know, if you want to outperform the market, you have to look different than the market. How different you want to be is going to be a function of whether you can actually stomach those highs and lows. So the only way that i found that can properly set expectations here is just to be very transparent. What does this stuff look like historically? It's not a free lunch. And, in fact, I don't think these premiums that we've observed, and we talk about the value premium being over 4% per year historically, you know, I don't think that it would be that large if it weren't accompanied by long stretches of underperformance, of disappointing results. And the extent to which that impacts your overall asset allocation's performance is going to depend on how tilted you were in the first place. We have lots of investment solutions so people can be at different rungs on that ladder. I sometimes describe it as spiciness. Not everyone is going to be able to handle 
habaneros and their breakfast tacos. Um, some people are going to want to scale it back to poblanos, and you're going to have everything in between. But just showing them the data and showing them that, look, if you want to outperform the market, this is the best thing we know about from the research. I don't expect it's going to go away. I do expect there might be some rough periods, but sticking through those rough periods has been the key historically to actually capturing those premiums over the long haul. Well, just for the record, I like habaneros in my breakfast tacos, uh, even ghost peppers occasionally. <laughs> but, uh, Wes, fantastic uh, insight this week. Really enjoyed the conversation. Congratulations on all the success with the ETF business. I mean, you, you quickly marching towards $100 billion in assets, uh, w- which is amazing. But thank you for joining me this week. Yeah, thank you for having me on. That was Wes Krill, head of investment strategist at Dimensional. Is it time to amplify your income potential? Explore what a high-quality covered call strategy can do for your monthly income needs. Discover Amplify DIVO and IDVO providing monthly income potential and active management in the efficiency of an ETF. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at AmplifyYields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. ETFs are subject to covered call risk. Visit AmplifyETFs.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. I'm now joined by Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, who recently launched two ETFs, the Alpha Architect High Inflation and Deflation ETF, ticker HIDE, H-I-D-E, that launched last November. And then at the end of December, they rolled out the Alpha Architect one to three month BOX ETF, ticker B-O-X-X, BOX. So they now offer seven ETFs under the Alpha Architect brand, nearly $700 million in assets. And then when you include their booming ETF white labeling business, ETF Architect, we're talking 32 ETFs, about $2.5 billion in assets. And Wes is now on the line with me. Wes, always a pleasure. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Nate. Uh, honor to be here. Appreciate it. All right. So, look, I've been saying this for a, a while now with your uh, ETF white labeling business. You might actually be in the best spot in the ETF industry. There are just so many firms trying to uh, enter the ETF space right now. And uh, obviously, you offer the solution. You can help them bring their ETF ideas to market. What have things been like over the uh, the, the past year or so as this has ramped up? Well, as you can imagine, when you uh, have 100% year-over-year growth, uh, <laughs> things get a little crazy, <laughs> and, and we're expecting the same thing this year. So, you know, we've been hiring a lot of people, getting our systems tighter, investing in technology, and, you know, kind of running around with our hair on fire, even though I don't have any more hair. Um, but, yeah, it's been fun, and I, it's a very exciting aspect of business, and we're kind of the leaders on innovating 
and trying to bring the costs and access to ETFs as low as humanly possible. I'm always curious, when, when you look at where the demand is coming from, where specifically are you seeing people trying to enter the ETF market? What, what's driving this? Well, so, so you know, one of the, the main benefits of an ETF structure is the in-kind process, which essentially amounts to a huge tax deferral uh, wrapper. And a lot of people uh, would love to manage their money in an ETF because they can access basically the tax deferral capability. And so one of the things that we've kind of brought forward to the market and I think we've probably done more deals than anybody, is is tax-free conversions, right? So you can take a hedge fund, turn it into an ETF tax-free, manage accounts, you could turn it into an ETF without, you know, tax consequence, and then uh, mutual funds as well. And we've done all those transactions, and we have live deals already out there, and that's pretty much all we do now. And, and, and the reason that you know, a lot of people are interested in that is they a lot of times they already have assets in place, but the ETF is just a better way to manage them because of the tax benefits. And because we've lowered the cost to a more um, accessible level, you know, we've kind of created this opportunity for a lot more people to enter the market. I know we've discussed this a little bit in the past, but I always have new listeners joining this podcast can you just explain the white labeling process overall? Like, let's say I believe yeah. I have a good ETF idea or perhaps I'm an RIA that thinks it would be beneficial yeah. to package up my strategy and do an ETF. So I call you up. Hopefully you uh, you take my call. <laughs> what, what does the process yeah. look like from there? Yes. So the, the, the basic intent of white label, as you know, is a lot of people, they just have good ideas and they do marketing distribution. They want to basically tell people about this good idea. But the problem with running ETF is it's probably one of the most hardcore, uh, compliant, regulated things you could possibly do. And a lot of people don't enjoy dealing with regulation, compliance, lawyers, trading, and all the kind of boring parts of the business. So the point of the white label is, listen, you go do what you're really good at, which is develop an intellectual property and then telling people about this idea. We do all the monkey work behind the scenes. And that, that's, that's kind of the intent of white label uh, is to be able to get access without you know, all the brain damage and the huge fixed cost. And the process, it's, you know, for a normal ETF that's not crazy, you're trying to do something super innovative, typically like, you know, four-month process, and that the initial stages are you effectively have to go to the SEC because you're, we're going to have an IPO uh, effectively. So we got to talk to SEC, make sure we have all the appropriate paperwork filed. Um, and then the other part about an ETF or mutual fund is, is we have an independent board of trustees. And so the other big component about launching ETF is convincing the independent board of trustees that this is not some half-baked idea and that this is like a viable business. And, you know, so that, that, that whole process with SEC and our board is, you know, generally four months. Um, and then once you launch the fund, then it's kind of like the easy part in some sense. Just, hey, make sure you pick good stocks and tell people about the idea. And we operate it. Um, and that's, you know, it's kind of day to day. I was looking at the uh, lineup of ETFs that you've helped bring the market under ETF Architect, and some people may not realize yep. you're actually behind the uh, Strive 
ETF lineup, which is a big new player on the scene. Uh, I show eight ETFs, over $600 million in, in assets. Are you able to comment on that at all? I just I thought that could be a good example in terms of what you're doing here. Yeah, so so there we've um, – well, I think a lot of operators have learned, like, regardless of your funding or your future desires, outsourcing all the you know, operational monkey work, it just makes a lot of sense, right? Like, why would you reinvent the wheel – when Wes and his and his team of bandits over here will do it, you know, faster, cheaper, and and probably better than you ever could. And so Strive is obviously like a very, very unique, interesting firm where they're they're backed with some very high profile folks. They have uh, an amazing amount of capital, and their vision it just it makes sense that the market needed kind of like your they wouldn't want to call it this, but let's just call it you know the anti woke version of iShares. Um, and they are doing exceptionally well. And I think one of the reasons that they're able to focus on their marketing distribution is, again, we deal with all the behind the scenes where all that team has to do is focus on, you know, telling people about their ideas and inventing new ideas. And they don't have to waste any time, you know, dealing with lawyers, compliance, trading, and, and all the, the fun, boring stuff behind the scenes that, that we're able to do for them. Before we move on here, we do have a lot of uh, RIAs and uh, aspiring fund managers who listen to this podcast. Maybe you don't want me doing this, but if if those individuals have an interest in potentially pursuing this path, what's the best way for them to uh, to, to get a hold of ETF Architect? I mean, that's why you just reach out directly. Um, just just hit us up on our contact sheet. You can just email me. It's you know Wes at uh, ETFarchitect.com. And at, at this point, this is a well-oiled machine where literally all I do all day is sit around and, and hear ETF pitches. So even if you have what you, if you think is a, a bad idea or a good idea, feel free to reach out because if anything, even if maybe it's not a great idea, I can tell you that because I, you know, I hear these things all day and I can give you a lot of competitive intelligence on maybe preventing you from doing something crazy before you even get started. And, you know, kind of the, the point of our platform and kind of our culture is we're not we're not going to BS you, right? If, if this is not a great idea, we're not going to suggest you try to do something that maybe doesn't make sense, even though we may benefit. And, and we really do try to be a fiduciary on making sure that if people want to enter the ETF space, they're well prepared, it makes sense. And, you know, yes, it's true, you're coming to the barber to ask for a haircut, but we try to not just say you need a haircut all the time. And if, you know, you're bald like me, hey, you don't need to go to the barber, man. It's probably a bad idea. Uh, <laughs> don't don't waste your time or money doing this. It, it just doesn't make sense. Hey, don't feel bad on the hair. I'm quickly uh, joining your club. I, I, I've got yeah, like, yeah. Very, very limited time left here. And, and by the way, I've got to tell you, I'm so uh, jealous of the, the seat you sit in because it's like a uh, an ETF shark tank. And, you know, I love seeing these new filings that are out there from from everybody. And, yeah. you know, not to get over my skis here, seem like I'm, I'm, I'm too confident, but I've got a pretty good track record where I'll see a filing out there. And I'd say nine, nine point five times out of ten, I can tell you whether or not it's going to be successful or not. And that ends up coming uh, true. Yeah. So I'm jealous that you get to sit on the seat and, uh, and, and, and run like this ETF shark tank. Uh, it, it's pretty neat. But yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun. And, and I'm, I'm sure if, if, uh, 
yeah, if, if you were in the same seat, you you would love it just as much. Just as a as a fellow uh, ETF geek, I, I love it. Um, okay, just a few minutes left here. I, I do want to sure. briefly touch on these two ETFs that you launched. Right, not only are you involved with yeah. white labeling, but you have your own ETF business, an Alpha Architect. And as I noted yeah. at the top, you recently launched the, these two products. So um, let, let's just spend a couple minutes on these. So the first one is the Alpha Architect High Inflation and Deflation ETF ticker Hide H I D E. Just explain the basic investment process here. Yep. So the basic point of Hide is to be a replacement for static fixed income portfolios. And, well, why would you do that? Well, <laughs> a lot of people are in 2022. You know, in, uh, fixed income is great if you go into deflation. It's not so great if you enter unexpected inflation. So the whole point of Hide is people should have a diversifier bucket that can kind of help them across all these different regimes, whether it's inflation or deflation. So all that the process is doing is it's looking at commodities, it's looking at REITs, real estate investment trusts, and it's looking at bonds, and it's going to trend follow across those allocations, right? So it's going to dynamically allocate to either commodities, uh, REITs, and bonds, or all three, or a mix of them, based on if they're in a positive trend. And, and that's all it's doing. It's just it's a one-stop, 29-bit, low-cost, fixed-income replacement that does simple trend-following. I guess you could also call it like managed futures for dummies uh, at really low price. Uh, that's what Hyatt is, is trying to do for folks. And right now, in terms of the allocation, if I'm not mistaken, it's currently like, what, 85% plus T-bills and then the remainder in the Granite Shares Bloomberg Commodity uh, Broad Strategy, ETFC, OMB. Does that sound right? Yep, yep, exactly. Because long bonds, as a lot of people, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> found out, uh, you know, got their face ripped off. So we haven't owned long bonds in a long time. And then commodities have kind of been hit or miss here recently, but generally been good. And then REITs have been bombing out. Like, those are starting to change now. But that's the whole point of, of hide, is it allows you to kind of hide and not think about it, right? It's You're going to be protected, presumably, in whether we're in inflation, deflation, or anything in between, you just you don't have to worry about this anymore. Um, okay, yeah, the, the allocations will be dynamic. The, the other ETF, this one's interesting. It's the Alpha Architect one to three month box ETF ticker B O X X box. This utilizes uh, an option strategy called a box spread. And I, I told listeners at the top they may need to put their thinking caps on for this one. Maybe, maybe not. You tell us. Yeah. Explain what a box spread strategy is. Yeah, so it's it's pretty. Uh, it's I would say simply what it is is what we're doing is extracting out implied funding rates in the market making options business. So a box spread is basically a fancy way to uh, generate a T bill out of the option markets. And the weeds of it are, are a little bit complex, but in the end, what you end up with is something that's going to have similar duration, similar risk as a treasury bill but the potential to have equal or better returns. Because generally, box spreads have funding rates that are actually higher than treasury bills. And the risk is that there is no risk in a box spread. The only risk difference between a box spread and a treasury bill is your counterparty. Um, in the case of a box spread, your counterparty is the Option Clearings Corporation. Obviously, in the case of a T-bill, uh, your counterparty is U.S. government. And S&P rates them at the same rating. So technically, the, the counterparty risk is the same. And, and really, the key difference between a box spread and a T-bill 
is the funding rates are generally a little bit higher, which is great. And then the other thing that is really important, we don't need to go into a detail here, is really the tax uh, element of a box spread taxation versus like a treasury bill. Um, and that's something that, that we, that's why we wasted a lot of time in two years to figure out how to get box spreads into an ETF is, that, is we think there's some unique tax benefits to uh, uh, doing a box spread versus doing uh, treasury bills. So I don't want to get you in uh, any compliance trouble, but if I were to just summarize this at a high level, it's effectively a uh, tax-efficient T-bill with potentially higher returns and an overall similar risk profile. Is, is that a fair characterization? Yep. Yeah, pretty much. That, that's what it is. Um, however, it's, you know, like anything in our products, it, <laughs> we want people to make sure they know what they get into. And we will spend a lot of education and time to help people understand this one. It just, just because it's important for them to get it so they can communicate it to their constituents. But the, I mean, the crazy thing is like we have, we think we have some good ideas. Honestly, the box is probably the best idea we've ever had and will probably ever have in an ETF structure. So it, it's certainly worth exploring if you're interested in in these sort of things. And I think I know the answer to this, but can you replicate this in other areas of the fixed income market? Yes, you can. So so we can extract funding rates at, you know, obviously like the one to three month rate, which we have right now. We can do this at one year rate with high confidence. And then we also want to try to do this at the three year, potentially five year rate down the road. But that that market is less developed in in the ETF world and in like the market making side. And, and we're, we're actually trying to unveil like a whole new funding source to, to the world, which is like, hey, now that we have this at ETF, there's a lot of natural lenders in the ETF world, right? There's a lot of people that have cash that own ETFs. And this is another way and another funding source for people who are natural lenders or sorry, borrowers on the other side. And so we think once we prove out the one to three month and the one year, a lot of the market makers and, and the natural borrowers on the other side of this will be more than happy to, you know, help us bring the market like three to five year durations. It's just right now the market's not developed enough to do it at huge scale. Whereas in the other ones, we, we could do that right now, which well, what, is great. I, I've got to tell you, I mean, again, another crystal clear example of the innovation in the ETF space. Just when I think I've seen it all, uh, something like this comes out. I, I just love seeing stuff like this. doesn't surprise me that you're behind it. Uh, and I'll, I'll be very interested watching uh, this product and potentially future products uh, down the road. But, Wes, we'll have to leave it yeah. there. Always fun connecting. Uh, congratulations on those launches. Congratulations on all the success with the white label business. And uh, I appreciate you hopping on the podcast this week. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate your time, Nate. Talk soon. That was Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Simplify Asset Management. If you would like to learn more about Simplify, you can visit simplify.us. Next week, two tremendous guests for you. I'll be joined by Tony Rockty, Global Head of ETFs at Morgan Stanley. He is going to discuss their uh, recent ETF entrance. I can't wait for that. And then uh, David Schassler, Head of Quantitative Investment Solutions at VanEck. Uh, we'll talk about the current market environment and spotlight a couple of ETFs, including the Vanek Commodity Strategy ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.